The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the second chapter. Now after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled, because they are no more. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. So, Today is the sixth day of the church's calendar's 12 days of Christmas. When church calendar-wise, we still can say Merry Christmas, and we join together in merrily singing Christmas carols, which you guys do great. May I just say that? But then comes the gospel reading I just read. The word gospel, by the way, I remind you, meaning good news. But which today sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard with abrasively, dissonantly ugly rudeness in the midst of our Merry Christmas to tell us a not at all good but God-awful story. That story you've never heard in Sunday school, of course. Story possibly some of you've never heard ever, anywhere. But Matthew, in his good news story, does tell us this part of the Christmas story. Matthew's the only one. Why? Because I want to suggest, in this sin-broken world, good news isn't powerful enough to be truly good news if it hides behind the walls of its book covers noticing only and telling only stories of the ways in which the world is good. Good news that is powerful enough to be the real thing has to notice and speak of and speak to that which, like fingernails on chalkboard, sounds with the dissonant ugliness of sin. In this world which God created to be good. By way of getting the context established, let me remind you that in the earlier part of Matthew 2's story, which comes just before the part of the story we read today, is found the very well-known part of Matthew's version of the Christmas story, for that is the place in the Bible where we hear the story of those wise men from the East who came to Jerusalem 
looking for a child who was born at Christmas as the king of the Jews. And wise or not, of course, where would you go in those days to look for a child like that but in the great city of Jerusalem and its great palace where Herod the Great was king and where presumably a newborn king would obviously be found. I remind you, Herod the Great, the word great was his idea, by the way, he was politically cunning, he was politically paranoid, he was powerfully evil. And when the wise men asked him about a newborn king, he knew nothing about any such thing, says Matthew, and that, says Matthew, troubled him. So now he's politically cunning and politically paranoid and evil and a hot and bothered mess, which is a very dangerous mix. But he masked the dangerous as he excused himself to ask his on-staff palace prophets about it. And they pondered and perused scripture and then told Herod that, well, it's kind of a long shot, but there's one kind of obscure reference the prophet Micah makes, which leads some to think that, that, that someday when the Messiah king is born, he could perhaps be born in Bethlehem. King David's hometown. So Herod goes back to the wise men and he smiled. It was an evil smile. But he said, gentlemen, behold, I bring you great news of great joy, Bethlehem. A quaint little rustic town just, just south of here. Some of our scriptures do suggest that a king who is the king we're all looking for someday will be born there. Then he smiled an even more wicked smile and he said to them, wouldn't that be wonderful? Gentlemen, he said, do me a favor, please. Go to Bethlehem and look around and ask around. And if you find this newborn king, please, please, by all means, come back and tell me where you found him, and then I too can give him the welcome that such a king truly deserves. So the Magi went to Bethlehem, as you know, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby, as you know, and they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh, as you know, and they worshiped the newborn king, as you know, and then warned in a dream that Herod's stated intentions weren't to be trusted, they returned to the east by a route which bypassed Herod's Jerusalem. Which takes us to the part of the story we heard today, and which for some of us today might well have been the first time we ever heard it, as the very next thing Matthew writes is that Joseph also dreamed a dream that night in which he was warned of evil Herod's evil intentions. And so he was told in the dream he dreamed that he should take his wife and his child and he should go to Egypt, which he immediately did, leaving before the sun even came up the next morning. And he made his way with his wife and child across the harsh country to the south and west of Bethlehem until he reached Egypt where he 
and his now refugee family entered to find safety and asylum outside of the dangerous reach of Herod the Greatly Dangerous. And then when the wise men didn't report to him, politically paranoid and evil, Herod was greatly furious. And so he ordered troops immediately to Bethlehem with these orders, find, find and kill every boy, baby up to the age of two in that old little town. The up to the two part was apparently because the wise men probably unwisely had told him that it had been about two years since the first time they saw that star they'd been following. And Herod's troops, I'm not thinking regular army, I'm thinking some of the goons from his personal security squad. They referred to him as HTG. His goons did what he commanded. And that little town of Bethlehem, whose hillside such a short time ago had echoed with the glorious angels of angels singing choirs, angel choir praises, now echoed with the horrible, horrible echoes of mothers stabbed by grief hearts. And so concludes Matthew was fulfilled what was written by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. takes us to us on the sixth day of Christmas. And what in the world are we to make of this awful Bible story? Which Matthew did choose to include in his gospel story, in his good news of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, Christ story. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I do think there's a reason that God awful Stories like this story are in the Bible, as, as I think there's a reason. Maybe not a reason we like, but a good reason for us to know these stories, even as awful as they are. In one of the Christmas Eve sermons I preached this week, one thing I said, and some of you heard this, I said, call the Christmas story what you will, just don't call it or turn it into a sentimentally naive story. I said that thinking about, as I'm thinking about still right now, all of the sentimentally superficial stuff, the fa-la-la-la fake stuff, that the world has superficially, sentimentally gift-wrapped around Christmas. And I said that because here's the thing, thing which I hinted at when I started today. If in the world there is such a thing as real good news, not fake news. It can't be news of light that shines just in the light. If there's such a thing as real good news and real peace and real hope and real joy, it must be news of light that shines in the darkness of this world, which we all know all too well to be all too real. 
Why is this story in the Bible and why is it important for us to know it? Because this story reminds us, proclaims to us, right from the beginning of its telling of great good news, that whatever this story is really good with is not news in and for a fake world, but in and for a real world. A world where darkness too often is really and truly dark. A world where sin is really and truly <coughs> sinful. A world where the innocent ones and the little ones too often are the ones who really and truly suffer and die. A world where those we love die. A world where evil damn it to hell is really and truly evil. Matthew's Gospel announces to us that indeed love is born at Christmas, but Matthew refuses to gloss over the fact that it is love born in a world that is God-awfully good at not loving. For that child of Bethlehem did not come to save our fake hopes and joys, he came to be our hope and joy. Saving us from all the Herod, the great kinds of promise makers, whose thoroughly, fakely great promises are fake, because they are great with something other than the true greatness, which is the greatness of God's great love. Of course, that truth, if it's true, leads those of us who are prone to ask hard questions of the scriptures and of God when its stories are harshly honest, start wondering when we read this harsh story, questions like, for example, this question, God has saved Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus from Herod's evil wrath. Why, God? Why, oh my God, why on God's green earth didn't you save all those other boy babies? and their moms and dads from Herod's evil wrath? A very good question, yes? You want to know the answer to that question? I do too. But I don't know the answer to that question. At least not an answer in so many words. But I do know this. In the words of John's Gospel's version of the Christmas story, the Word became flesh to dwell among us. God's answer to our question in other words isn't an explanation. God's answer to our question, God's answer to the hopes and fears of all the years is that child. That child who was indeed spared Herod's wrath but not because he came magically to slip away from the world's darkness, but rather because it wasn't yet time. He had 33 years of things yet to do before, not in Bethlehem, but in Jerusalem, the city of kings. This king would take all that is not just 
Herod's evil and darkness, but all that is all the world's evil and darkness upon himself to that rugged cross. A cross which powerfully, interestingly, would be staked up in the darkness, not all that very far at all, from King Herod's king son's palace. I don't know why my brain isn't big enough to understand why those innocent little ones in Bethlehem couldn't have been spared the death they died. But I do know this. Whatever good news is truly good is good because God's son, though he escaped the death Herod's sin would command, did not, when the time was right, flee from but rather set his face toward the path the world's sin would demand. For he did not come to bring fairy tale news to a fake world. He came to bring, he came to be good news, the real thing in our real world. And the good news is this news the world's Herods may yet well have their day. But God, and by God I mean not fear but love, will, when the story is done being told, have its way with Herod, with those little ones, and with you. For love, the real thing, is what was by God born in Bethlehem. And that love would do, that love will do, what only God's love can do, even when loving in 33 years would mean hell to pay and a truly innocent death to die. That is not fa-la-la-la fake news for a fairy tale world. That, my sisters and brothers, is good news for our all-too-often real world. So how about doing something really good? Like giving your sin, your real sin, to Jesus and giving your love, real love, to the world's little ones. Amen. I chose the hymn of the day on this People's Choice Sunday. It's printed in your bulletins. It's a tune you know. It's a tune I dare guess maybe nobody knows the story of. It's a lullaby. Uh, lule, lule, you've heard it. It's beautiful. It's haunting. We maybe think of it as a lullaby for the Christ child. It's not true. This is the only carol I know that was written as a lullaby, sung by the mothers of Bethlehem to their boy babies. I don't want to get all too musical on you. But you know there are happy-sounding music and there's sadder-sounding music. Um, in music language, happier are often in what are called major keys. Sadder or somber are what are called minor keys. Um, this song is obviously written in a sadder minor key. It's a very interesting and early example, however, of what is called a Picardy third which means the very last chord, and I, maybe you'll hear this, 
the very last chord, what should be the sad chord, by just a half a step difference, uh, is turned into a happy chord, a major chord, a hopeful chord. It's theological writing that in this darkness there is yet hope. There is yet brightness to come. Kathy, could you would you play the last phrase of this and just keep it in minor? Well, that was minor in a different kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're going to do it with what's called the Picardy Third. See if you can hear the last note just get a little bit brighter. With Let's do some theological singing. 